I don't know if it's possible to uh, get G-forces from turning the page in a book, uh, you know, or get whiplash from going from one chapter to another. But if you could, this would be it. When you go from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to chapter 7, you might get whiplash because Paul changes pace and changes topics so fast and so hard he changes directions in his letter that it really just can throw you for a loop here. And the reason being is because if you remember, Paul spent 18 months with the church in Corinth when he planted them. Then after that, he left. Since then, he's only been corresponding with them through letters. And every now and then, he gets a report about something that's going on. Presumably, he's written at least one, if not two letters prior to this one. We know from chapter 5 that they've written letters back to him that he's responding to. And the letters that he's responding to are them taking issue with his letters. And they're trying to ask him questions about, well, Paul, if you're saying this, what about this, this, and this? And there's this discussion and this banter going back between the, the church in Corinth and Paul. And what's happening is, is in this last letter, if you recall, if you're here for the introduction, which was months ago at this point, the introduction, he asked, they ask very specific questions of him about certain things that they're dealing with. But Paul does not, at first, go after answering those questions. Because there's things that he realizes if he answers their questions, they're going to go the wrong route. It's kind of like if, a, if a, a student comes into a professor and he asks the professor a specific question. But the professor knows, I can answer this question, but, if, but, but there's a false premise. I can see what's going on in this student's mind. And if I give them this answer, they're going to assume, they're going to come to a conclusion that means such and such because they have false assumptions. So instead of just answering the question that was asked, he actually has to take time to explain the underlying assumptions so that they won't make a wrong judgment because of the answer he gives them. Do you understand what I'm saying? And th this is kind of like what Jesus does in Luke chapter 20. Do you remember in Luke chapter 20 when the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus? And they say, Jesus, by what authority are you doing all these things? You remember that? And Jesus, I, you can just picture him looking at him like, you think, you think I'm stupid here? You know, like... You're not actually asking what authority I'm coming in. What you're trying to do is trap me. And so what he does is he goes to the heart of it and he says, I'm going to answer that question by asking another question. And what was the question that he asked? John the Baptist. Exactly. Thanks, Dave. He says, what authority did John the Baptist come in? You know, you tell me that and then I'll answer the question. They wouldn't answer it. And he says, so neither will I. And Paul does something similar in the book of Corinthians. See, what's happening is, is they're looking for legal answers to some things. They're looking for like, what does God think about this and about this and about this? Because they want to self-justify and they want to be right and they want to be good and they want to know what they can get away with and what they can't and they want to do all of that. And Paul knows what they're trying to do. He knows the motivations in answer, asking the questions. So before he addresses their questions, he takes six chapters Six chapters to address other things first, to give them perspective. And all that we've talked about in, the, in the, uh, this Corinthian series so far has been prior to him answering their questions. Okay, this has been all about him getting them back to what spiritual maturity is actually all about to what their purpose in being holy and set apart is actually all about, what true unity looks like, that they're, 
t telling them they're still in pride and competition and trying to be better than the next person when they need to be in unity and they need to be dependent on God and they need the cross and they need the authority in their lives, i.e. Paul, to help keep them connected to that true message. And he's, he's kind of doing all of this groundwork. And in the last message, in chapters 5 and 6, he says, and you're supposed to hold each other accountable to this, and you've seen that we haven't held on to Christ, because here's these guys who are engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality, and no one's even dealing with it. And that was kind of the, the, the culmination of his, uh, his prequel to answering their questions. Because he's like, obviously you guys aren't thinking right here, we all know that the sexual immorality that's going on is inappropriate, but you guys aren't dealing with it. And the reason is because you're not on the same team. You're not dependent on the cross. You're not submitting to your spiritual authority. None of that stuff's working. And the reason you're asking all these questions you're asking is because you're still trying to self-justify yourself. Now, given all of that, let me answer your question. That's kind of where he's at, okay? And that brings us to chapter 7. And then what he says at the beginning of chapter 7, and we'll see it, we're about to read it, he says, now, to answer your question. And then, it does a huge switch now. And now he actually is going to answer their question. But it's to a completely different group of people than he was just addressing in 5 and 6. In 5 and 6, he was talking about accountability and judging. And he was talking to, to the people that he's going to be talking to in chapter 7. Those same people who he's saying, you actually have to hold your brothers and sisters accountable. But who he's not talking to in chapter 7 is those who were living in the immorality. He's not talking to those who were living, those crazy, immoral Corinthians. He's talking to those in the church who are taking leadership and who are considering themselves holy. That's who he's talking to in chapter 7. Okay, And so this, as we read this, you're going to see things about marriage and about sexuality. He's not talking to those who are living sexually immoral. He's talking to those who are trying to justify themselves by just how moral they are. Okay, They're legalists. That's what's going on. That's who he's addressing in chapter 7. And he finally got through explaining to them what faith is all about, what authority is all about, what the kingdom of God is all about, to the extent that he feels comfortable now answering their question. And we are going to dive in. Paul dives into the, And this is a very unique, one of a kind. You will not find another passage of Scripture in all of the New Testament that's like this one. Honestly. I, I'm not saying that it's more important than others or anything like that. In some ways, it's kind of like dealing with a kind of mundane topic and whatever. It doesn't seem like huge theology or something. But what you find is, and you'll watch, listen for this as we read it. There's moments where Paul says, you know, this is what God thinks, not necessarily what I think. And then there's other moments where he says, this is what I think. And I'm not sure if it's what God thinks, you know, but this is what I think. And you hear Paul kind of nuancing whether this is him talking or God talking. And he's talking to a very specific group of people about a very specific thing. And it's a unique passage of scripture that deals with things that aren't dealt with in, in almost anywhere else in the New Testament. Okay. So uh, with that said, uh, let's dive into this kind of one of a kind passage together. Okay. Verse 7, or chapter 7, and again, I'm going to let you off the hook from standing today. It is a very long chapter. Okay, there's 40 verses here. So let's hang on. Try to stay as attentive as possible, please. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. 
The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Hear that? That's one of those caveats there. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Verse 12, to the rest, I say this, another one of these caveats, I not the Lord. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. An unbelieving man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not be uncircumcised. Don't know how that would work. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Now, about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as to one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. And some people said, Amen. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, 
those who have wives should live as if they had none. (laughs) Those who mourn as if they did not. And those who are happy as if they are not, as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 36. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then... He who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of his word. You know, this is a really interesting passage. It's a very, very interesting passage. If ever there's a passage where we might say it's important to know the context, this might be one of those passages. Because it's like, what is Paul talking about? You know, honestly, what is it? I mean, we know he's talking about marriage and sexuality, but obviously what he's speaking to is not just... He's not just laying out universal carte blanche truth here. He's speaking to a specific group of people who are asking a specific set of questions. Otherwise, why would he just all of a sudden talk about some of these random things? And so it's important to understand the context, particularly when you're coming off of what Paul just talked about. What Paul just talked about was the sexual immorality that was going on. And now all of us, and remember in that immorality, what he's saying is there's appropriate ways to engage in sexuality, and those are appropriate, and, and we should, there should be judgment in the church making sure that there's appropriate expression of sexuality. And now all of a sudden, Paul starts talking about all this crazy stuff about not getting married and all that. What is he talking about? And this is where we see the about face kind of take place in the passage. The, the questions that were asked of Paul were obviously questions about marriage and sexuality. Okay, that were obvious that that's what those questions were about. Now, because it's the church of Corinth, it's easy for us to assume that they're talking about, that that there's a group of people who there's immorality and they're talking about how to live moral lives. That's not really what it looks like when you look at the full breadth of the picture of Corinth. It looks like who he's dealing with is this group of people who uh, commentators and historians refer to as the eschatological people. Okay, let me explain. When you get to chapter 15, of Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians, and we'll get there. Paul's talking about the resurrection. 
okay? And he starts making a case for the resurrection about why the resurrection is so important and why Jesus rising from the dead is so important and why people, when us rising ultimately, saints rising ultimately, is so important. Why is Paul going after that? The reason Paul goes after that in 1 Corinthians 15 is because there's a heresy that's taking place in the church of Corinth. People are being misled. And this is what the group of people who are being misled think. They think that they've already been resurrected. Okay? They think that they've already experienced the resurrection. Now, we know that we can live a resurrection life right? That we can live life under the power of the resurrection. But they think that, you know, remember this passage when, and this is also in Luke 20. We just quoted from Luke 20 when Jesus kind of addressed the Pharisees who were trying to stump him. Later on in that same chapter, the the Pharisees are trying to stump him again. And you remember what they say? They say, hey, there's this woman and she gets married and her husband dies. And then she gets married again. And what happens to that husband? He dies, and so on and so forth. Seven husbands, right? She has seven husbands. She, something wasn't going, no one should have married her anymore, you know? <laughs> and she, her husbands, all of them kept dying, seven of them, you know? And um, obviously they're making this, situ- this whole thing up, and they say, but when she gets to heaven, which one is she going to be married to? Which one is she going to be married to? And they're trying to stump Jesus. And I'll have you turn with me to Luke. I didn't tell the our people to put this up on the screen. So you'll have to turn there if you want to read it with me. But if you uh, turn to Luke 20, Jesus replies in verse 34, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. And then verse 35, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So these people in Corinth picked up on this and they're like, those of us who are worthy of the next stage are those who don't marry and aren't given to marriage. We're the resurrection people. We're the eschatological people. We're the people living in the end time. We're the people who have been resurrected. So therefore, we won't marry. And if we are married, we won't engage in marital activity because we're holier than that. We're better than that. And being in, a, in an immoral place like Corinth was a perfect place to watch people get holy by not engaging in sexuality and immorality. That's the material stuff. But Jesus said the resurrected people don't deal with marriage. And do, so what happened was there was this group of people, particularly a group of women, who were already married and they were saying that they were too holy in sexual activity with their husbands wonder how that went, you know? Think through that, you know? How's that going to go? And Paul, interestingly enough, has been dealing with the church in Corinth and all of their division. Remember, there's the division between those who follow this preacher and follow that preacher and those who think they're wiser than these people and all of that. And he's been trying to show them that they have the wrong mindset. And the reason is because the question that they're asking right now about sexuality and about marriage is about trying to be an elite Christian and not playing team ball even within marriage because they're trying to be super special and and be more elite be the resurrection people and not actually care about the one who God has placed them next to and so what Paul says is he's addressing this group of people and he and he does go on about sexuality and about marriage and about people in all sorts of different circumstances. And presumably, they asked about these people in all the different circumstances. They asked about those who have never 
been there before, you know? They've asked about those who are in a marriage relationship with someone who's not a believer. They asked about those who are uh, in a marriage relationship, but is it appropriate for them to abstain from intimacy with one another? And so those are the kind of questions that they're drilling Paul with. And here, Paul hears them, and remember, he knows why they're asking, because they're trying to be super holy and self-justify by disengaging with anything material, you know? And so that's why he lays all that groundwork in the first, first six chapters. But now he's going to engage that conversation with them, okay? And he's going to address their concerns about marriage and sexuality. Knowing who these people are and knowing what it is that they're struggling with, hear these answers that Paul gives them, okay? Here's the basic answers. We already read them in the text, so I'm just going to say them to you. He says, if you are married... Stay married. It's not a bad thing to be married. God created marriage. God made them male and female in his image. And he told them, for this reason, a, father will leave, a, a man will leave his mother and father and will become one in flesh with her. Okay? So basically Paul's saying, if you're married, stay married. And not only stay married, be intimate with one another. Okay? Stay connected to each other. In every way, you know, this is where Paul's going. Stay connected. Don't let the enemy get in there and divide you and lead you astray. Stay connected to each other. And for him, in answer to their specific question, he says that means physical intimacy as well, okay? And so that's one of the things that he's going after in this. That's what he says to those who are married. Then he says there are some of you who are married who are married to unbelievers, Okay, you've come to trust Christ, but your spouse doesn't. He says, to you, I say this, if your spouse will still have you, stay married and invest into it. You may be unequally yoked or whatever. Christ has got you. He's got a hold of you. Stay in there. He might do something spectacular through your spouse. And there's probably a ton that you're going to learn in the process. But stay in there. Stay committed. Stay connected to those of you who are unmarried. Okay, and there, there's different categories in there. There was those who were widowed. There was those who had been divorced. There was those who are, uh, who are virgins, who, is, who have never engaged in marriage. There's kind of this assumption in him. He's saying virgin and using that synonymously with unmarried. He goes back and forth in the text because Paul understands the basic assumption that, marriage, or that sexuality is only to take place in the bounds of marriage. Okay, and so he's saying on any of those counts, whether you're pre-marriage, post-marriage, via death, or via divorce, whatever it is, he said, my favorite option is that you stay single, okay? And that you don't worry about trying to find someone else. Get married to God and to the kingdom. Be all about it. However, and this is where he puts the big caveat, if that's not for you, and you can't hang on that level, and you can't be content with just God or whatever, well, then get married. And don't feel bad about it. Although, I'm a little better is kind of how he says it, you know? And it's really kind of funny. He says, like, this is the better way, but I also recognize that not everyone's wired like me, and God didn't make you like that, so it's not going to work for you. This is the ideal way, but it's not going to work for you, and know yourself enough to know what you need to do, okay? And so that's his basic answer to all of their different situations, okay? Now, before we go any further with unpacking those or explaining those in ways that apply to us, we have, to, we have to look at one thing, and we have to look at how Paul approaches this topic, 
there are some assumptions that he has that we have to make sure that we all understand in order to understand why he would answer the way he does. And it has to do with how much of our faith or our religion or our spiritual walk or whatever, how much of that affect, how much it affects the rest of our life, okay? And that's, that's a big assumption in this. Some of us, how we uh, understand Paul will be influenced by our own answer to that same question. How much our faith, how much our religion, how much whatever it is affects the rest of our life. Some of us were raised in homes where in our home it was all about how we honor God and how we submit to God. Some of us were raised in homes like that. And that it was understood that everything in my life was about how we honor God and submit to God. Now that might have been an impre- uh, oppressive a religious, oppressive, legalistic environment, or it might have been a very caring, loving, God-centered environment. But some of us were where religion, faith, spiritual walk was central to everything else. It was kind of the overarching principle and everything else was interpreted through that. Others of us were in environments where God was very important in a very different kind of way. He was super important, but religion and faith walk was something to be balanced with the other things in our lives. So there's the work part of my life, the school part of my life, the family part of my life, and the faith part of my life. And and that's very important in balance with everything else. And still others of us were raised in an environment where God and faith and religion was kind of like maybe a hobby or an interest, maybe something that was mentioned, maybe something that wasn't mentioned. Could have even been that in your family it was mocked a little bit as kind of weakness or whatever. Paul clearly, clearly believes this. He believes that all there is, is Jesus. That that's it. That's all there is. That he is the life, like our memory verse says. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He's come that we have life and that we have it abundantly. Okay, the, the way we hear Paul saying this is in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection and all of that. He calls Jesus this. He calls him all in all. You, we, there's that song. Remember that praise song? You are my strength when I am weak. Uh, and you get to the chorus and it says, You are my all in all. And that's a, a quote from Corinthians, okay? All in all. That's what he believes. If you go to Colossians, you hear him say that he is before all things. He is over all things. All things are held together in him. Paul believes this, that outside of Christ... There is no life, there is no truth, there is no reality, there is no nothing. So, and this is not outside of Christianity, or outside of Christian principles, or outside of Christian religion. It's outside of the person of Jesus Christ. So what Paul believes is this. He believes to the extent that we know and live in a relationship with Jesus, to the extent that we live our lives under the power of, and control of Jesus Christ, we experience life, and we experience reality. This is why Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is why Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So what he believes is this. He believes all there is, is Christ. That's it, okay? With that understood, how does that affect Paul's answers about marriage and about sexuality? Well, if we are Christ followers, we also understand this. If we're people of the book, 
who believe this is the authority, then we believe that just because Paul thought that doesn't mean that we have to think it. But what we do believe is that since Paul wrote about it, it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, we have to believe that too. And that all there is in this life, all there is in, as far as reality and life is Christ. And so if we hold to the scriptures, we believe that. Now, marriage and sexuality, we know, have just failed open in our society at this point, right? We recognize that. Over 50% of marriages fail at this point. We realize that. You know, those statistics are brutal. Realize that there's really no difference between, there's little to no difference in those statistics between inside and outside of the church. There's almost no difference at all. And there are actually uh, some surveys would show that marriages fail more often of people inside of the church than those outside of the church. Of course, one of the statistics around that that you have to take into consideration is that inside the church, there's a whole lot more pressure to actually be married Whereas outside of the church, you, can, you know, it's much more acceptable to be living a sexually active lifestyle without being married. And so if you counted all of those relationships that fail too, the statistics might be a little bit different. However, regardless of what way you slice it, sexuality and marriage in our society have failed open inside and outside of the church. What I've heard very often um, not necessarily from people at Parker Ford, but in general, is that we don't focus on marriage enough. We don't talk about marriage enough. We don't show people how to stay together in marriage enough. But I believe that looking at what Paul's saying in this text and looking at Paul's perspective on Christ and the kingdom, he tells us something very different. It's not that we don't focus on marriage enough. It may even be at times that we focus on marriage too much. Well, how could that lead to the failure of marriage? The reason that can lead to the failure of marriage is because if we make a big deal out of marriage and we make that a bigger deal than Christ, then our marriages are bound to fail. If the church who holds up the story of God and whose focus is to be on Christ and the kingdom of God instead starts to teach practical how-to messages and all sorts of lessons on how to make this function in my life and how to do this in my life and we're trying to teach people how to be functional, then we're trying to get them to be self-dependent instead of getting them to know God. And the church's job is not primarily to teach about how to do parenting or how to do marriage or how to do anything else. That's part of what happens as we teach God. Yes, that comes out because it's there in the scriptures. But the primary job in the church is for us to go after Christ and the kingdom. And if our marriages would be focused on Christ and focused on the kingdom, then our marriages would see success. And in the church, when we see things failing open, we have this tendency to run and try to fix those things. And there's a bit of an arrogance in us in the church to think that we can actually fix those things. We can't. What we can do is go back to Christ and teach the truth of scriptures and hold on in faith to him. And if we will pursue him, he can fix us. You know, that's the way it works. And so I, in a society, I don't discourage us teaching on marriage and parenting. We're going to have a parenting workshop and a manual on parenting that we're going to do in the fall. We have our, our journey groups in the fall are going to focus on how to do marriage. We have studies about biblical perspectives on marriage that are going to come out. But what we primarily try to do in our teaching is focus on the scripture and what it says and going after Christ. Let me explain how the temptation is 
to where the temptation is to miss that. I, uh, when I planned out the series in Corinthians, you know, I take a brief overview of the whole thing. I look at a couple of commentaries and I read the book and then I outline uh, each chapter and say, uh, all right, what's the, what's the basic theme of this chapter? And I come up with a title. The title is As You Were because he says each of you should remain as you were when you came to Christ. And that's the general answer that he gives to all of them. So that was the theme, all right? Now, each week when I go to prep that sermon, once I get to it, I have a little blurb about what, I, what the summary was and I have a title and I have the text. And then I start again, like, all right, what's this message gonna be about? When I went to prep this message, I started reading and I got down to verse 13 and 14. And in verse 13 and 14, there's this word in there that sent me for a loop and wanted to make me make this a topical message. Anybody know what that word might be? It's a big word in our society and it starts with a D. Divorce. Okay, I heard this word divorce when I was reading it and I was like, oh boy, here's a big one, right? You know, this is a big word in the church. This is a big word in society. I hit the D word. What am I going to do? I got to now preach a, a, a sermon on divorce, on the theology and the doctrine of divorce that we have here. And I was tempted and I started to pursue my study, looking at the full counsel of scripture, going back to Genesis and going to Jesus words and studying divorce. And I realized all of a sudden I've co-opted this series in, Cor- in Corinthians to start talking about the topic of divorce. And what's going to happen if I do that? What's going to happen if I do that is we might all walk away on Sunday having a better picture about what Parker Ford Church thinks about divorce. But you know what won't have happened? Is we won't learn what Paul was trying to say to the people in Corinth who believed they were already resurrected and were dealing with their sexuality in weird ways. And we're never going to learn the deep truth of the story of Scripture. We're going to miss it because I got sidetracked to talk about this one topic. Because it's a a big topic in our society. Now, why do I go through all the pains to tell you all of that? The reason is because this. That's exactly what these people were asking Paul to do for them. They didn't want to know God and know the big story of God and be connected to the kingdom. What they wanted to know was, how am I supposed to believe about this? What am I supposed to do about this? Give me the laws. Give me the rules. Let me check the box so I can feel good about myself. And as soon as you tell me what the rules are, what the laws are, what the doctrines are, then I can feel okay about my faith. And Paul won't answer their question until he spends six chapters describing to them what it means to walk in relationship with God because what they were pursuing was a religion of rules and laws and doctrines instead of knowing the heart of God. See, here's, the, here's how this works. My boys, there are times when I uh, am at home and I'm studying up in my, up in my office at home and I'll, if the boys are around, they know they can't disturb dad right now, okay? And so I'll just, here's the rules right now. No disturbing dad, you know, just, I, I got to study. I'm sorry, but I got to study. And that's fine. They get it. They know it. But every now and then I'll hear a knock at the door, you know, and someone will come and say something. And there are times when I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and usually I'm kind of asking that question when they first open the door. But then every now and then they start telling me what's going on. And I realize what's going on was worthy of interrupting what I'm doing right now. They really needed my attention. They knew the rule, but more than the rule, they knew their dad. And they knew what dad would think in this situation, even though it went against the rule. 
And you watch this happen over and over and over again with Jesus, right? Where the Pharisees ask, how come your guys are sitting there eating without washing their hands? How come they're picking kernels on the Sabbath? They're breaking our traditions. They're breaking the laws. And every time Jesus is like, basically in essence, you don't know God, do you? You know, you don't know God. You have a religion. You have a doctrine. You check the boxes. You're asking if everyone believes the way you do about this topic and about that topic. But you don't know the heart of God. Otherwise, you'd realize in this situation, he's not worried about that right now. This is more important. And knowing what is more important when is about knowing dad. It's about knowing God. If we just know rules and just know doctrines, guess what? We'll find ourselves in a situation at some point where we won't know how this applies anymore and we'll be so confused and we won't be able to figure it out because all we ever studied was doctrines and rules and we tried to practice the rules, but we didn't get to know Dad, you know? And this is why Paul has, a, has this perspective with them in this, where he goes for six chapters and he explains everything. And then when he gets down to it, he has a basic answer for all of them. He's like, stay in the situation you're in. Don't try to jump out of it. Remain as you were. Because changing your circumstances isn't going to make you more holy. It's not going to make you more happy. Knowing God is going to give you wisdom and power and strength to use every situation that you are in to further the kingdom of God and to know your Father. So don't worry about getting out of that weird relationship you're in. Don't worry about trying to find this other person to make you happy. Don't worry about having this other experience or doing this or doing that. You don't need any of that. If you have Christ, you have what you need. And he says it like this in verse 20. He says, you have been bought at a price don't make yourselves slaves to men any longer. You know? When you were called, you were called in a certain way. And so it's great how Paul responds. I mean, I, it's absolutely beautiful how he responds. His basic uh, take on, you know, if you're married, don't try to change the circumstances and get out of that marriage. Don't try to withhold from the marriage. Live well within that marriage by the glory of God and for the glory of God. On And for those who aren't married, you don't need marriage necessarily, but if you want to get married, you're not sinning. It's fine. There's no legal problem around that. There is actually a legal issue that we struggle around. You know, you see when it comes to if you're in the bounds of marriage and you hear about God hating divorce and all of that, this is not a doctrinal statement on marriage and divorce, by the way. That's not what Paul's doing here. This is not a doctrinal statement. If we want to understand the doctrine of marriage and divorce, you have to start in Genesis and end in Revelation and read the whole thing and understand them all within context and start to know the heart of God around this thing and realize what God really doesn't like and realize how it's nuanced in weird ways in different situations and you have to hear the whole story and become a part of the story. Paul's not making a doctrinal statement. Paul's helping them understand how to live in Christ in the situation that they're in right now. That's what's going on, okay? And so he's saying, but those of you who are in the marriage, we hear clearly that God doesn't want us to step out of marriage, so stay in it. You know, just stay in it and, and find God within it. And those of us who are unmarried, we've heard Jesus talk about that. It's a good thing to stay unmarried and to just be connected to him. But if you want to get married, obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Go and get married, you know? But, but either way, don't get hung up 
on whether or not I'm better or worse or happier or not based on any of those circumstances. And by the way, I just got to take a quick break on this thing and say, um, this is a weird, I don't usually do this. And then I'm going to single out a specific denomination and say something that I disagree with because I think it's important to say. I, have a, I, I take major issue in the Roman Catholic Church with the fact that priests are not allowed to be married, okay? And I take major issue with that because I like being married, okay? Um, and, and I, you know, I know that I was wired to be married. I know that God brought a precious gift into my life. All of you can say amen, you know? And I, I, God brought a, a very special gift into my life that is massively helpful in me doing ministry as well and in us doing ministry together and in building the kingdom of God. If Jen were not in my life, I guarantee you, guaranteed, that I would not be anywhere near as effective in the kingdom of God as I am. Right, Josh? Amen. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll say the same of Josh with Shelby, you know? Amen. And uh, Bob and Rosella, you exemplified this for years, you know? And so what's more is, is Peter, he's the first pope, right? Guess what? Had a wife. What are you going to do about that? You know what I mean? This is, there's, this is, I take issue with that one. So if you come from that kind of background or whatever, just nobody's perfect in doctrine and every movement that starts on point struggles over time and fades away and it starts about the scripture. I'm not slamming Roman Catholicism, honestly, I'm not because bottom line, all of us come from there, you know? I don't know of anyone in this service right now who comes from a tradition outside of Roman Catholicism because we're all Reformation people who came from the Reformation. In our second service, we have a couple people who came from another branch uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy and came around the other way from a place other than Roman Catholicism. But the rest of us, our history all ties back to Roman Catholicism. I'm not trying to scorn that, but I am saying this is one where they got way off, you know? Martin Luther stood against a whole bunch of things they got off. I'm naming one right here, okay? And you, we are not more holy, we are not righteous because we stay unmarried and those who serve in certain ways are not required to be unmarried and the scriptures clearly reveal that, okay? Um, that was a side note. Now, um, I just want to end by saying this. Our application for today is very simple and I want to give an example before I even say the application. You guys know, have you ever seen the end of the spear? There's a film, The End of the Spear, and that's the film about Nate Saint and Jim Elliott. Uh, they, they, they were the mission aviators, and they go down in South America, and they, they're martyred. You know, they're killed by those who they're trying to minister to. They're mission aviators, like our missionaries, like Paul and Beth, who were back in town at this point. Um, and, and they're killed. Now, Jim, uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, uh, you may have heard of Elizabeth Elliott since then. You know, that was her, her uh, Jim Elliott's wife, at the time, and they did not have a perfect marriage. If you read about it, they had plenty of struggles in their marriage, you know? They were no, and, and they're very, she's very open about that. It, didn't ha- it wasn't real easy. And yet, one thing that's really awesome to hear is what happens to their families after the martyrdom of these guys. You know, their families, if you've seen the film, and if you haven't seen the film, End of the Spear, you should really go out and see it. It's a very special film that uh, tells this whole story. And so they... They, uh, they go back, the families go back, end up living with these tribes, bringing them to Christ, discipling them. It's this beautiful thing. And when you hear Elizabeth Elliot talk about God taking her husband from her, you know, she has this spectacular perspective. And the perspective is, this marriage wasn't for me. It wasn't about me. 
Now, it hurt, yeah, but it hurt God too. If I'm despairing or angry at God, then I had the wrong perspective on who this marriage was for. This marriage wasn't for me. This marriage was for the kingdom of God. And if God wants to take my husband to do something, hey, that's God's prerogative. Because this marriage wasn't about me or my happiness or what I want. This thing is about God. And basically, that's Paul's answer to all of their questions in Corinth. This is, in the end, it's not about whether you get married. It's not about whether you don't get married. It's not about this form, you know, it's, it's not about all that stuff. Know yourself and then know what it means for you to pursue God with everything inside of you. And if that means that it's better to do that in, in terms of marriage, then go after it. If it means that you can do that better single, there's a special calling on those who can do that as singles. And we want to honor that. And sometimes in our society, we don't honor that enough, you know, and say, hey, man, there's some people who are called to live single lives and can throw themselves at Christ. And that's an awesome thing. And then he says, and those of you who find yourself in a marriage, whether you're happy or not, throw yourself into that marriage, but not to please yourself and not just to please the other, but to please God. And he even says this, those of you who are married should now live as though you are not. What is he saying? He's saying it's not about pleasing one another. It's about pleasing God. The bottom line, if I'm married, this marriage is now a mission partnership in the kingdom of God. And if I'm not married, my life is a full-on pursuit of Jesus and he is now my spouse, you know? And that's it. And that's how Paul responds to it. And it's a great message for us today. Maybe for different reasons than it was for them. But a great message nonetheless. Not to make marriage the big deal. Make Jesus the big deal and make marriage a part of that. Make not marriage a part of that. But it's all about Christ and it's all about the kingdom. Amen? All right, let's pray.